Hello, I'm Merrick Schneider. Welcome to this podcast of articles from the Wall Street Journal, a presentation of Airs LA. You are listening to this recording, which is provided for the use of those who are blind or print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyrighted property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. Today's first article is entitled, Yard Work Can Be a Lawn Walk, by Mark Nadia. Then an article by Hadrika Sin, Wary Bitcoin Investors Chase Shiny New Object Gold. Bob Green wrote an article, When Chicago Flushed the Toilet Tax. And Jimmy Vican and Joseph Pisani's article, New York City Phil's Critical Post, Rat Czar. And then we do have an article by Christina Martin, The Supreme Court Takes Up Home Equity Theft. So let's begin with today's article, and all of these are from recent editions of the Wall Street Journal. Yard work can be a lawn walk. Yard work can be a noisy business, but I keep it quiet by using a real lawn mower, the kind young people would recognize only from old pictures. There are a lot of sophisticated machines to trim grass these days. Several companies make an auto mower, basically a Roomba with a blade instead of a vacuum. There are also riding mowers and self-propelling ones. Electric motors powered by lithium-ion batteries are becoming more popular. I have been tempted to buy one of these marvels if not for the awful sounds they make and the exhaust belch by gasoline-powered models. It's common to hear complaints about the constant ding of leaf blowers disturbing weekend mornings, but the same can be said for mowers with engines. When was the last time you saw someone mowing a lawn without earbuds in? A primitive lawn mower also costs less. Mine costs $90 new, while the going rate for a new basic gasoline-powered model or an electric one with a battery included is around $250. When it comes to lawn maintenance, simpler can be better. I don't waste any time wondering whether my mower will start or checking if it needs to be charged or filled with oil or fuel. This means I can do a full cut in about 20 minutes. I also don't need to store combustibles, which certainly helps me sleep at night. The main maintenance, the American Lawn Mower Company, which is based in Indianapolis and manufactured my mower, recommends sharpening the blades every two years. That's about as long as an expensive rechargeable lithium-ion battery lasts. Unlike a motorized mower, mine does the job no matter how fast you push it. A rotating blade will miss patches if you push the pace, but I often jog through longer sections and the multiple blades still chew through overgrown turf. I'll admit, it isn't all upside. I need to keep sticks, mulch, and big weeds out of the grass because a real mower can't cut through those like a motorized one can, and I have to do more passes because the blades are shorter but I'll take those inconveniences over an obnoxious conventional machine any day. No one has thanked me yet for my contribution to reducing my neighborhood's noise level. 
Lawn mowing is a chore, but with my real mower, it's more like a walk through the park than an afternoon at the Indy 500. And now, let's do the article, Weary Bitcoin Investors Chase Shiny New Object, Gold. For three years, Mitch Day rode Bitcoin's wild swings through the record highs of 2021 to the cold water plunge of 2022. Mr. Day and a number of his cryptocurrency compatriots have since turned to the asset favored by Pharaohs, Pirates, and Scrooge McDuck, helping drive an outbreak of gold fever. For a long time, I kind of figured, oh, gold and silver, that's kind of the old guy's thing, said Mr. Day, a 27-year-old college student in Kenlona, British Columbia. Sure, I'm not necessarily going to get rich buying gold, but it will hold that money in uncertain times better than a lot of things. Bruised by a steep decline in a variety of cryptocurrencies, some investors who preached about crypto's independence from banks and national currencies have diversified into gold. Web searches for crypto and gold in the same query last year hit their highest level since 2018 according to an analysis by Nick Martin of Hootsuite, social media marketing platform based in Vancouver. Google searches for the phrase, how to buy gold, have hit their highest recording level so far this month, according to Google Trends data going back about two decades. The Spider Gold Shares Exchange Traded Fund, the largest ETF backed by physical gold, has gained about 20% in the past six months. Sales of American Eagle coins in January hit the highest monthly tally in more than a year, running close to last year's pace through the first quarter, according to the United States Mint. Bitcoin has lost about half its value since late 2021, as well as much of its mystique. The collapse of cryptocurrency exchange FTX further crushed enthusiasm, along with the paychecks of such big-name promoters as Tom Brady, Kim Kardashian, and Shaquille O'Neal. Crypto firms spent more than $70 million last year to air Super Bowl ads. This year, not a single one played. Gold prices, by contrast, remained nearly flat last year, while stocks and bonds posted double-digit losses. In recent weeks, fears about turmoil in the banking sector have driven gold future prices above $2,000 a troy ounce for the first time in a year, near record highs. Crypto, touted by fans as investing's future, has a lot of ground to cover. The current market value of all cryptocurrencies stands at about $1.2 trillion, according to CoinMarketCap. As one of the world's oldest assets, gold has a total estimated value at $14.5 trillion, according to data from the industry group World Gold Council, estimating the amount of gold mined worthwhile. Gold was prized by ancient Egyptians and Incans. It lured European explorers to the New World and the original 49ers to California. 
The precious metal remains a staple in investors' portfolios, prized for its stability and as a hedge against inflation. It also can be easily melted into bars or coins, a valuable benefit for criminals now that authorities have breached the anonymity of digital wallets. Rob Sotelli of Chicagoic, British Columbia, is among those diversifying away from digital holdings. His investment in a crypto mining firm increased tenfold from late 2020 to early 2021. Since then, he has become increasingly disillusioned with cryptocurrencies and tweets saying they will save the world and bring peace. I hope it comes true, but none of that is going to help my retirement account appreciate in value, as a lot of people found out the hard way, myself included, said Mr. Sartelli, 56. At the beginning of 2022, Mr. Sardelli's portfolio contained about 10% Bitcoin and Ethereum. Those holdings have since fallen to 5%. People had a party, and they're leaving now, he said of the crypto boom. Mr. Sardelli, like some others in the cyber crowd, say that they are willing to trade the big gains and stomach churning plunges of cryptocurrency for the relative stability of gold prices. His portfolio includes about 10% in gold and 14% in silver, he said. Daniel Fisher, chief executive of a physical gold limited, a precious metals dealer in London, said crypto's decline and stock market turbulence has kept him busy selling gold and silver coins in recent months. Many people think I could keep this running and lose everything, he said, or I can start taking chips off the table. Louis Sousa started narrowing his cryptocurrency holdings to Bitcoin in late 2021, he said, and began adding Britannia coins in 2022. Even in the worst possible time in the market, gold's worst will be better than Bitcoin's worst said the 29-year-old veterinarian of Cardiff, Wales. Mr. Day knows gold isn't going to take him to the moon, echoing the lingo of traders who believe a particular cryptocurrency will skyrocket in value. He buys gold coins to preserve his wealth. Bitcoin shares common qualities with gold. Both are mined. Neither is wallet-friendly and they are virtually useless for buying gas, groceries, or a movie ticket. But gold has a distinct advantage compared with digital currencies. It looks beautiful in and of itself, Mr. J said, and you can densely hold wealth in your hands. Bob Green's When Chicago Flushed the Toilet Tax The mayor of Chicago Acting on instinct, knew just what to do. Say no to easy revenue that had been coming in for years. The city reputation was far more valuable. This wasn't Lori Lightfoot, the current mayor, or Brandon Johnson, the mayor-elect. This was Richard J. Daly, Daly the Elder, who served from 1955 until his death in 1976. What he decided to do on a seemingly trivial issue is an object lesson in how not to leave a needlessly bad taste in the mouths of residents and visitors. 
It also helped to change a once-taken-for-granted part of American life. The year was 1973. As in many cities, the toilets in Chicago's airports required a fee for their use. A dime had to be inserted into a slot before a stall's door would open. The existence of paid toilets nationwide had seldom been seriously questioned. In 1970, four Dayton, Ohio high school students had found a semi-whimsical organization called the Committee to End Pay Toilets in America. The group was mostly met with smiles. Daly, the most powerful mayor in the United States, heard about the group and understood immediately that the Ohio kids were right. Charge people money to go to the bathroom, something, something everyone needed to do multiple times each day? What kind of welcome was that to visitors to Chicago? What kind of send-off was that to Chicagoans on their way out of town? Every dime dropped into every toilet stall slot was lousy public relations for the city. So as a man holding all but absolute power locally, he decreed that the pay toilets in the airports would henceforth be free. He even managed to make it a women's rights issue. Because men's weren't charged to use the urinals, the pay toilets were an example of sex discrimination. Daly, never known as a feminist, nonetheless announced, I did it for women's lib. The company that manufactured and installed the lock mechanisms, Nick O'Lock, of Indianapolis, was understandably displeased. Daly didn't care. He ordered Nick O'Lock to remove those locks, do it at once, if not sooner. Within three weeks, the locks were gone. Chicago City Council, on Daly's command, soon expanded the no-pay toilet edict to all places which serve and accommodate the public. Around the country, it was as if a light bulb had switched on above the heads of mayors and governors. Of course, why anger citizens by constantly charging them for something as personal and necessary as using a bathroom? Other municipalities from coast to coast began to follow the daily example. Reporters and editorial writers couldn't help themselves. They described the victorious no-paid toilet proponents as flushed with triumph. An inconsequential issue? Daly was smart enough to understand that it's never a good idea for a city to make its residents and visitors resentful. A dime was only a dime, but it felt like a constant and intrusive tax. Cities, then and now, always need income. But even in 2023's America, where public restrooms can seem hard to find, a savvy mayor knows better than to pick the pockets of people in a hurry to get behind a certain door. New York City fills critical post, the rat czar. Kathleen Coraldi's anti-rat bona fides date to grade school when she organized a petition drive to have her Long Island town do something about an infestation behind her house. Now she has been crowned New York City's rat czar. The 34-year-old beat out 900 other applicants for a position that the job posting said requires a 
swashbuckling attitude, crafty humor, and general aura of bad assery. Mayor Eric Adams, who announced it last week, has been clear that he hates a rodent believed to number about 2 million in New York City. The people most adept at fighting rats can be inducted into the Pest Management Professional Hall of Fame. Getting respect from those outside the field is tougher. Colin Zeigler, chief rat chaser in Somerville, Massachusetts, loves talking rats at dinner parties, but he notices that others are not all ears. I do often get told that it's time to change subjects, he said. Orkin last year ranked New York the country's second rattiest city after Chicago. Based on the number of rodent treatments, Los Angeles, Washington, D.C., and San Francisco squeaked into the top five. Brown rats, the species frequently seen on subway tracks and sidewalks, arrived some 300 years ago and adapted well. They burrow into the soil around sidewalk trees and rip into trash bags for scraps of chicken or cold pizza. City inspectors found over 60,000 instances of rat activities in 2022, which was more than double the prior year. It's a problem with a long tail. Joseph Loda, named New York's first rat czar in the year 2000, likened fighting its rat population to the challenge Cepheus had in forever trying to get a boulder up a hill. Former Mayor Bill de Blasio tried to keep rats at bay with mint-scented trash bags. Mr. Adams, when he was Brooklyn Borough President, showed a contraption that drowned rats in an alcoholic solution. Michael Parsons, an ecologist who has researched rodents for nearly a decade, got into the field after moving to New York from Australia, where he studied kangaroos. He said rat experts refer to themselves as rodentoontologists. He didn't seek the job of New York rats are. I couldn't apply knowing that you're meant to be this bloodthirsty person with a swashbuckling attitude, said Mr. Parsons, a visiting scholar at Fordham University. Mr. Parsons cringes when he hears people say they want to kill rats. He said it doesn't help. Another rat's going to take the place of the fallen rat within seconds. Another rat expert, Bobby Corrigan, once worked for New York's health department and now consults for other cities. An inductee into the Pest Management Professional Hall of Fame, he has a Ph.D. in urban rodentology from Purdue University. The school is a center connecting academic study and pest control experts said Heather Kuch, editor-in-chief of the Pest Management Professional magazine. Mr. Corrigan didn't seek to become New York's rat czar either, saying the job requires someone who can monitor and manage other agencies, which is not in my wheelhouse. The finalists did include people with such experience and at least one exterminator, a city hall official said. A few people pitched new technologies to fight rats, including an audio detection system. The applicants included Curtis Sliwa, a longtime New York City anti-crime activist 
who ran against Mr. Adams in the 2021 mayoral election. Mr. Adams' Brooklyn house was cited by inspectors twice last year for unabated rat infestations. The mayor contested the summonses and said he has paid around $7,000 to an exterminator. Mr. Sliwa applied for the rat czar job by visiting Mr. Adams' house with two feral cats, Batman and Robin, who he said could help control the rodents. If you're going to be a rat czar, said Mr. Sliwa, you've got to do it from 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. in the morning. That's when the rats rule the city. Mr. Sliwa said he wasn't a finalist for the job. The city was looking for a maestro to coordinate this entire symphony of fighters against rats, Mr. Adams said at the announcement. The mayor, who said that as a child he once made a pet of a rat in the family apartment, picked Miss Coraldi for the $155,000 a year post because he was impressed in a job interview by her emotional intelligence, he said. Miss Coraldi studied biology in college and worked as an elementary school teacher before taking a position working on rat mitigation in the city schools. Despite the job posting's call for someone displaying badassery, she said she wouldn't describe herself as bloodthirsty. Miss Coraldi said dispatching innovative extermination techniques was part of her prior job. Rats are incredibly intelligent and adaptable. They are survivors, she noted. She will coordinate anti-rat initiatives by sanitation, parks, public housing, and other city agencies, and will try to curb rats' food supply, building on recent trash pickup changes designed to reduce the time garbage bags sit on the sidewalks. The job also entails public cheerleading, often alongside a mayor with a certain sense of flair, to build attention and awareness. You'll be seeing a lot of me, Ms. Coraldi promised, and a lot less rats. And now, Christina Martins, the Supreme Court takes up home equity theft. Geraldine Tyler never thought she'd end up in front of the United States Supreme Court especially at age 94. But she also never imagined the government would seize her Minneapolis home and sell it. Ms. Tyler is a victim of what's often called home equity theft, but this form of robbery isn't criminal. In fact, it's legal in a dozen states. The Supreme Court, which will hear oral arguments in Tyler versus Hennepin County, has the opportunity to end these predatory tax foreclosures once and for all. Ms. Tyler's trouble began when she moved into a senior residence in 2010 and fell behind on her property taxes. She ended up owing Hennepin County roughly $2,300. After tacking on penalties, interest, and related costs, her debt ballooned to $15,000. To collect what it was owed, Hennepin County seized and later sold the one-bedroom condo for $40,000. You might think the county would settle the $15,000 debt and return the $25,000 balance to Ms. Tyler. But the county took all $40,000 
and left her with nothing to show from her only significant asset. Ms. Tyler fought back, and the justices will soon decide whether the government violated the Constitution by confiscating the total value of her former home. Most states treat property tax collections like other debts, only taking as much as the government is owed. But Minnesota is one of 12 states, plus the District of Columbia, that regularly take a windfall when collecting delinquent property taxes. Several more states that typically protect property tax debtors have created special loopholes that allow the government to take a windfall so long as it uses the property for public purposes. As a result, thousands of owners are robbed of their equity every year. A recent study by Pacific Legal Foundation found that governments seized at least 8,950 homes between 2014 and 2021. That's only the tip of the iceberg since the study could only example a limited sample of foreclosures in these states. The total losses suffered by the debtors, usually elderly, sick, or poor, are shocking. In Massachusetts alone, the government took $56 million in equity between August 2013 and July 2014, according to research by University of Massachusetts law professor Ralph Clifford. These laws create perverse incentives that lead to tragedies. Michigan's Oakland County seized one retiree's rental home in 2013 when he mistakenly underpaid his 2011 taxes by $8. In Washington, a veteran struggling with dementia lost his $200,000 home because he missed $133 in taxes. Meanwhile, Kevin Fair of Scotts Bluff, Nebraska, has a separate petition pending before the Supreme Court that raises the same constitutional claims as Ms. Tyler's case. Mr. Fair suffered financial trouble when he had to quit his job in 2013 to care for his dying wife. When he underpaid his property taxes by $588, the county sold that debt to Continental Resources, a private investment company. Unknown to Mr. Fair, the company quietly paid the subsequent taxes while Mr. Fair's debt grew at 14% interest over three years. When the debt had grown to $5,268, Continental Resources sent Mr. Fair a bill and a 90-day warning. When he was unable to pay his debt, the county gave his entire $60,000 home to the investment company. Mr. Fair's petition argues that this practice of government agencies handing over tax-delinquent property to private investors without compensating debtors for their equity is unconstitutional. Mr. Fair, Ms. Tyler, and property owners everywhere may soon get justice. If the Supreme Court rules for Ms. Tyler, home equity theft and all the devastation left in its wake could swiftly end. If the High Court takes the additional step of giving Mr. Fair relief, then states that outsource the unpleasantness to private investors would likewise be unnoticed that the injustice must stop. Given the support from dozens of groups across the political spectrum, including AARP, 
the American Civil Liberties Union, the American Taxpayers Association, legal aid groups, eight states, and many free market think tanks, the ground is shifting and home equity theft will soon be a thing of the past. When it is, we'll be able to credit people like Ms. Tyler and Mr. Fair for having the courage to fight back. That brings us to the end of today's articles. I'm Merrick Schneider, and I'll be back soon with more articles. Thank you for listening.